Good evening. It is my privilege to be here. Um, as I stopped in the back and, and looked at the rest of the, the summer speakers, um, it seems like which one of these is not like the other? It seems like everybody else has been pastoring for a long time, and I've got a whopping two years in the pastorate under my belt. But it is my privilege to be here and to bring God's Word and to share that and to speak especially with what God has laid on my heart. If you spend any time in the media, listening to the radio, watching TV, um, you may have heard an ad that sounds something like the following. Do you have bad credit? Is your credit less than perfect? Are you spending too much on highest interest credit cards because you can't get a loan? If so, we have the answer. Or perhaps... Have you been injured in a slip and fall accident? Have you re received an injury from someone or something through no fault of your own? Are you wondering what to do because no one else will take your case? Or my favorite billboard, 1-800-WE-SUE-BIG. Um, you look at our media. You look at the culture in which we live. Everyone or everything is constantly vying for your attention, especially when you're in some tragedy when all of a sudden you are in this great hole, when you have this great problem, they want you, they want it in your head. If you have problems, call us, we'll fix them. It doesn't matter whether it's financial, whether it's physical, whether it's whatever. You know, you don't have a good enough doctor. You need a doctor from our health system. They want when you to know whenever you're in trouble, call them. But is that the response a Christian ought to have? When we're in trouble, when things are bad, where should we look and to whom should we turn? If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the 42nd Psalm. There's five divisions in the book of Psalm, at least uh, in the later part of Israel's history. They took them from three to five separate books. And this is actually that first psalm and the second book. You'll see there, book two, and right underneath it, Psalm 42. The superscript for the choir director, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song that was intending to be sung. And much like the songs that we've sung this evening, there's a chorus. And if you read your text, you'll see that chorus, and you'll see that chorus repeated in verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mizar, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. 
All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. There's two recurring themes that just keep coming up through this particular psalm. The first is the psalmist's memory, his remembrance of what he used to do, the way things used to be, how he used to lead. The second is that of water. We'll see that as it comes up a couple of times in here. But verse 1 is a familiar verse. The Lord provides hope in times of drought. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Have you ever been in a place spiritually where you feel like you are in a spiritual desert? Where it seems like all of the spiritual nourishment, all of the spiritual communion that you had with God is just gone? It's just, it's empty. It's barren. You might be reading your Bible. You might be coming to church and sometimes it just feels like you are going through the motions. Like there is nothing there. You might describe yourself as thirsting for God, for the living God. The psalmist asks, when shall I come and appear before God? He doesn't describe what his trial was. He doesn't describe what was going on. And it's actually one of the strengths of the psalms as we read chapter after chapter, psalm after psalm. And we have no idea what they were facing. In some cases we do. In some cases, the superscript tells us exactly. This is the song that David wrote when, and they provide the exact context. We don't have such a privilege here. All we know is that there was a spiritual drought that he was facing. And it wasn't necessarily through any direct fault of his own. But it bothered him. It upset him. Hope in the Lord in times of despair. His soul thirsts for God, for the living God. For the living God. For the living water from God. Does this remind you of a New Testament parable? The living water that Christ promised to the Samaritan woman at the well. When she came in, He said to her, You don't have to draw water every day. I have a water that if you drink from, you will never thirst from again. And of course, she's thinking temporal water. And she's thinking to herself, okay, I don't have to put this heavy clay pot on my head and walk out to the well in the middle of the day and fetch water every day of my entire existence. Well, yes, give this to me. And that's not the water Christ was talking about. It was the water from which she would never thirst again. It was spiritual life that He was offering. In this context, it's obviously not that same spiritual life. The psalmist is a believer. A believer in God who is thirsting for God. But he is thirsting for that quenching 
spiritual appetite that only God can provide. Not only does God provide hope in times of despair, but God provides hope in times of doubt. My tears have been my food all day and night while they say to me, where is God? We don't know who they is. You know they say. No one ever defines they. In this context, the psalmist doesn't either. Some enemy somewhere for some reason have taken his plight and have associated that with a direct hand of his God and said, God has brought this upon you. Where is this God that you've told us about? Where is this God that you have lived? Where is He now? But these things the psalmist remembered and poured out his soul. For he used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house to God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude-keeping festival. There was a time when this psalmist was leading the procession to the temple. It's for this reason many think the psalmist here is David. The psalms before it were written by David. The psalms after it were written by David. Pretty much everything else in books 1 and 2 were written by David. There's a good case that can be made. This definitely fits David's life. But if this is David, when was he not leading the procession to the temple to worship God? When was he ever not in Jerusalem? And you think and say, yeah, like when his son decided that dear old dad didn't need to rule the kingdom anymore. That instead he wanted to rule the kingdom and dear old dad and dear old dad's entire entourage from the palace can just take a hike. And effectively his counselors turned and joined Absalom the entire nation that he used to govern turned. And all of David's efforts to lead the people in right worship, to train them up to serve Yahweh. And where does he find himself? Hiking with his family? Whoever would come with him? Those that did not want to stay behind in the palace? Do you think this is a time for David to rejoice about all the great victories that the Lord has wrought? Or is this a time of great personal introspection where David is asking, God, what happened? What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? How many times do trials come in our life? Do things close in? We look up and say, God, what's the deal? I mean, what did I do to deserve this? You can empathize with the psalmist about where he is and what he's dealing with and how this is just vexing to his soul. And all the people around him are asking, So, Mr. Spiritual Leader, so you who used to tell me all about your God, where is he now? In the wake of all these disasters, how many times have we gotten that? The earthquakes, the tsunamis, the shootings, 
especially when they're by quote-unquote Christian fundamentalists. How many times do people ask us, where is your God? And look at the psalmist's response. When they ask where his God is, he remembers how he used to approach God, how he used to lead the people in worship of God, and to where does he go then? Does he go to sit on a psychologist's couch? Does he go to the self-help section of his library? Does he call a pastor and say, Pastor, we need to talk? Verse 5, the psalmist's antidote to his own depression. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. The psalmist's response was to quit listening to himself and start talking to himself, to start preaching at himself. If we have a spiritual leader who used to lead the entire congregation of Israel in worship, he doesn't need a theology lesson. He doesn't need somebody to open a Bible up for him and say, Dear Psalmist, look at Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those that love the Lord. Therefore, you must love the Lord more. You just need to have enough faith. The Gospel that we believe is not a prosperity Gospel. When we confess faith in Christ, it is not our golden ticket. It is not our entrance into a perfect utopian life where everything becomes absolutely wonderful. That's a gospel of materialism. It's a false gospel. When we confess our faith in Christ, we give Him our life. We give Him our all. Everything we have becomes His. And in an opportunity like this, the psalmist cries out to God for that vindication. He realizes that in and of himself, he can do nothing to extricate himself from this predicament. In the wake of all of these tragedies, there's a number of my own college students who have come to me and said, I have friends, I have co-workers, I have you know, different people I interact with that are asking me, you know, how do I account for this? You know, what do you do with a passage like um, an email I got Monday of this week? Isaiah 45, 7. You know, I am the God who has created everything. I create both good and evil. I have done it all, says the Lord. And I'm getting emails saying, how do I explain this? I have unbelievers coming and showing these scriptures to me saying, see, God created evil. God did this. Does the psalmist answer them? And I'm not saying it's inappropriate to answer them. Please, there is a place to answer and to defend the Gospel. We should always be ready to give account for the hope that's in us. But the hope is not based on our interpretation of present tragedies. Our hope is based on the Gospel of God. Too many times, though, we become discouraged. We become depressed. And we become discouraged and we become depressed because of stuff. You know, the ambiguous things that are out there. 
It was the summer that I actually had the opportunity to work in an actual test lab that I understood this more. I enjoyed the job because I got paid to break things. It was kind of fun. I went to work every day and I broke things and they paid me for it. Sometimes they made really big booms and really violent explosions and that was even more fun. But everybody I worked with was an unbeliever. Being, you know, just a test facility, you didn't, I didn't get to work with the engineers, the guys who had graduated from high school and, you know, had college degrees. Most of the ones I had, most of them had graduated from high school and had a, can I say, vocabulary that was, um, that fit that degree. Um, they, they, they liked short words about four letters long, give or take. And I did not realize how many parts of speech they could form from said vocabulary. And it was just a constant oppression. They knew that, A, I was a Christian. They, they figured that out about 20 minutes after I was on the job when they were all going out for a smoke break and I wasn't. And they're going, well, what are you going to do with all your time then? Thinking, work, perhaps? Um, but they would go off on these tirades of, you know, whatever inconvenienced them at the moment. And I just conveniently left my earplugs from the shop in. And it was just this constant attack on my faith of everything I held near and dear, of times where they were taking my Lord's name in vain. And I told them that not only was it inappropriate and offensive to God, but I certainly didn't appreciate it. There was one guy who had young kids who, you know, took pity on me and would actually warn me and tell me to, you know, plug my ears before he went off. But it was that kind of junk dealing with day after day after day that I said, I have to be with God's people. It wasn't a matter of, you know, do I feel like coming to church or do I not? I need that fellowship with God's people. I need that encouragement. I need that spiritual strength. These are, this is what the psalmist is longing for. Not just people. Not just stuff. But for God and for God Himself. It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on spiritual depression that said, we need to quit listening to ourselves and start speaking to ourselves. And a generation that's hooked on drugs that they have, for any ailment you have, we have a drug for you. For elementary boys, you know, if they can't sit still longer than 60 seconds, which elementary boys don't do, that's why you have recess, well, put them on Ritalin. You know, put them on drugs. Put them on all this stuff. Instead of training them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And, you know, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. And there is legitimate use for medication. But too many times, medication becomes our solution. That becomes what we have our trust in. If we don't have that, we can't function. And that's not the kind of trust we ought to have in our God. But not only do we need to trust in the Lord in times of drought, but we need to trust in the Lord in times of deluge. The psalmist moves in the first five verses from this empty, barren wasteland to the rivers and the streams of the northern Jordan. Oh, oh my God, 
My soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Generally speaking, we don't think of the Middle East as a place for great turbulent and turbid waters. You know, the ocean, you know, you get down around, you know, the southern tip of Africa, South America. You know, we think, okay, violent seas. But you get up to the Sea of Galilee especially, where it's you have mountains all the way around on three sides. You get a little breeze coming over the top of the mountain. By the time it hits the bottom, it's a huge gust. Why do you think the disciples go from fishing to we're going to die in 20 minutes or less? I mean, there's, it was notorious for even though only being about seven miles across, this sea was very, very violent. Storms came up very quickly, especially when you've got all the snow melt and all that coming down. You've got the rivers flooding and all the rest of this coming down the Jordan. These are the violent waters that the psalmist is describing here. When life closes in, when things happen, the psalmist remembered God even when all of the violent and the rushing and the turbulent waters of life rolled over. For many of us, this is life. It's not easy, it's not simple. We wish we could just read our Bible, pray every day, and life would just be golden. But things happen. Our appliances break. Our cars blow engines. Our roof blows off. We lose jobs. The stock market tanks. We lose our retirement. All of everything, it seems comes in waves and you get hit full in the face with one wave, you try and stand up and here comes the next one. Just again and again and again. And if there's anything we've learned in life, water always wins. I know this by personal experience. My house, Well, I guess it was before it was my house. They, um, the residents didn't care to necessarily winterize the house. They weren't there and the pipes froze. Little little crack, little dinky crack, only about you know inch three quarters to an inch long, one of the overflow pipes in the the bathroom. Well, spring came and all the ice melted, and the water ran, and ran 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 some more. About seven hundred and fifty thousand gallons of water later, um, yes, that is three quarters of a million gallons of water. They, the city decided that you know a house with water running out the front door was a bad idea, um, and so they just shut the water off at the street. You know, so as as I came through, bought the house, all the hardwood is toast, all the carpeting is toast, all the padding is toast, all the finished basement is toast. I mean, all the drywall where that was anywhere close to the week was where that the leak was was gone. All the trim was gone. There was all kinds of things growing. I had a mushroom about, you know, four inches in diameter in my base. I mean, all kinds of things. Water wins. Where does our trust go? Does our trust go into the things of this life, to the safety nets that we've constructed? 
to our own retirements that we've set up, to our own subsidies for how we plan our existence, our own housing, our own transportation, our own plans for life. This, God, this is the way my life should go. And when it doesn't, where do we turn? Hope in the Lord in times of despair. But not only in times of despair, hope in the Lord in times of doubt. Verse 7 says, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Unlike the barrenness of the first stanza, the psalmist has taken on a completely different circumstance. The water that he's now longed for, that he said, God, give me a drink from this water. The fire hydrant has been opened. And water is overflowing him to the point he can't even get that drink. Where is our trust? Can we relate to the psalmist? Where life is completely unbearable and overwhelming? There's but one answer for the longing of your soul. There's only one answer to this great oppression that you feel. Hope in God. Trust in Him. I had the opportunity a number of years ago to go rafting down in West Virginia through the the New River Gorge. It's one of the most popular whitewater rafting trips because it's a lot of fun and it's fairly safe. Fairly being the key word. Um, you know, as we're going down the river, they they you know, they have named all of these rapids, and you know, here's Greyhound bus stopper, and we're looking at the thing going, yeah, that would probably stop a greyhound. I mean, there's just these huge outcroppings and these huge valleys, and I mean, this just rushing water. And as we're going down the river, the guy's telling us, yeah, you don't want to go over there because you can see the water just lapping and lapping, and you know, see all this float sand over there, as the current has just locked it in there. And he says, yeah, you float in there. And you're not coming out. And we're going, okay, note to self. You know, there's, there's a couple of times he was pretty dogmatic about where and how we should be paddling because he didn't want to get stuck in one of those. But we've, we got through a number site and we hit a section of, you know, relatively calm water. You know, I think they classified it as a class one rapids, which means I think there was a little bubble at some point in here. But he said, if you guys want to get out and just float through the rapids in your life jackets, you know, fine. So we thought, hey, cool, you know, we can, it's hot out, we can get wet. So we jumped in the water in our life preservers and helmets and, you know, whole nine yards, and we start floating down this thing. And, you know, you know, we kind of bobbed a little bit and said, okay, that was fun. And we're just, you know, laughing, joking, having a good time. And all of a sudden I look around and all I see is water. I noticed a quick breath I had taken, I mean, c- completely involuntary, as I'm sitting there looking around going, where am I? How did I get here? And how do I get out of wherever I am? I'm just bobbing down the river and all of a sudden I disappear. And there was some little quick riptide that just yanked me under. And, you know, it seemed like about 20 or 30 seconds that I was underwater. I mean, you know, the whole life flash before your eyes thing. It was just this whole monologue that I had. And, you know, thinking to myself, I don't know that my brain necessarily works that fast, but I had this long, deep conversation with myself as I'm sitting there under the water. And, you know, then I pop back up and look around and everyone goes, where did you go? I'm like, that is an excellent question. I wish I knew where I went. 
But as I'm sitting there and looking at water with no idea where I am, no idea what direction I need to be swimming, that it only happened to me one other time in my life when I came down, you know, one of those great big water slides, you know, and hit the water at such speeds that I'm completely turned upside down. I have no idea what direction is up. And I tried to swim and tried to swim and I wasn't getting to the surface. So I kind of just like gave up and let the life jacket do all the work. As I'm sitting there and looking around, I had no idea what was up. I had no idea what direction I needed to swim. I knew the life jacket I had worked. It had worked all the way down the river. It was time to trust in a piece of styrofoam. It's a simple, simple analogy. But where is our trust? Do we trust in our own strength and our own swimming abilities? Or do we trust in God? And we trust that God knows what He's doing and He will take care of us in life. How does the psalmist respond to this? He goes again from despair to doubt to verse 8, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist says, I know what the solution is. I know how to respond to this. Hope in God. I've got it. And yet, where does he fall right back into in verse 9? I will say to the God of my, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist isn't carrying on a theological discourse. It's not who God is and let's talk about His character traits. The psalmist is saying, I hurt. Life hurts and I need answers. Many times when believers are going through difficult circumstances and we are trying to encourage them in the Lord to talk with them, to listen to them, and they say, why has God done... Fill in the blank. Whatever their situation is. They don't need a dissertation on the goodness of God through trials. They don't need a theological exposition of the book of Job. Most of the time they need somebody to hug. They need a shoulder to cry on. They hurt. They know what the right answers are. They're just crying out saying, life hurts right now. They're looking for encouragement in the Lord. Was the psalmist in verse 9 looking for an answer for God? Saying, God, you must tell me why you have forgotten me and why I have to go on mourning and why my enemies continually oppress me? Or is the psalmist trying to reconcile his situation with what he knows about God? With who he knows God to be? This God of goodness, this God of justice, this God of love. How can God do this? What is God doing? He again moves from despair to doubt as a shattering of my bones. My adversaries revile me, and they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Is this what the Christian reality really is? Is this Christian reality really what we want? Just this last Sunday, we had a guest speaker at our church 
who said the Christian life is full of trials. You're either in a trial, you've just gotten out of a trial, or are getting ready to go back into a trial. God is trying to grow us, to mold us and conform us so that we look like Jesus Christ here on this earth. For some, God has been able to do a great work in them over the years. For some of us, we've got a long way to go. But where does the psalmist end? Does he allow himself to get overwhelmed by his doubt? Does he allow himself to be overwhelmed by all of this junk of life? To be caught up in despair and doubt and depression? To be so discouraged that he's going to be ineffective? The psalmist again counsels himself, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. If this is where this psalm ended, this is kind of anticlimactic. A self-help sermon saying, just hope, just help, just believe in God and God will take care of it all. Psalm 42 and 43 were probably written as one psalm initially. If you look at the end of verse 43, of chapter, or Psalm 43, verse 5, that refrain will again sound familiar. And we're going to look at those first four verses and end with that refrain. And why the psalmist has the ability and has the theological conviction to continue, because this is the psalmist's prayer for deliverance. He begins in Psalm 43.1, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you. O God, my God, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. The psalmist expresses his confidence in God, his confidence in the will of God. He asks God for justification, that God would look upon him and justify him before an ungodly nation. He's resting and staking his case saying, God, all of these unbelievers that are asking me, account for the situation that you're in. How can God allow this to happen to you? He said, God, this is your decision. This is in your court. Your name is at stake. Vindicate your name among these ungodly nations. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Why? How can the psalmist have this level of confidence? For you are the God of my strength. From where does our strength as believers come? Because we have such great faith. Because we're so spiritual. Because we get up so early every morning and we have our devotions and we have our prayer time and it's all about what we do? Or do we serve a big God? 
who never leaves us, who never forsakes us, who never forgets us, whose arm doesn't wax short, who never slumbers nor sleeps, who knows everything, who is everywhere, and has all power. Is that the God that you serve? Why has God rejected him? Why does he go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist doesn't have that answer. Job never got that answer. At the end of his life, after all of Job's friends, quote-unquote friends, all of these bad things happen, his friends come and convene and say, Job, bad things are happening to you. Therefore, you must have done something bad. Because if you had done something good, good things would have happened to you. What did you do? Job said, okay, look at my life. Tell me. I did nothing wrong. And the next friend gets up and said, no, no, no. You misunderstood. Bad things are happening to you. You must have done something bad. Third friend. Again, they go into their second speeches. All these guys are trying to convince Job, Job, you must have done something wrong to deserve this. And Job goes through the list of, here are all of the spiritual virtues that I have, and no, I have not done anything wrong. And they throw up their hands and I say, forget it. We cannot convince him. And a young guy named Elihu gets up and says, okay, now that all you old guys you know, got it wrong, here, let, let me talk. And he goes along the same line of reasoning and said, God obviously rewards faithfulness and God's not rewarding you, so you must have been unfaithful. And Job in exasperation says, Oh, I wish there was a court that I could stand before God that I would be declared innocent. I have done nothing wrong. And it was at that point that God Himself appears. And said, Job, exactly where were you when I? And we have two and a half chapters worth of stuff that God has done. Where God says, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created the oceans? Where were you when I created Behemoth and Leviathan? Where were you when I... And we have two chapters of all the marvelous works that God has done. And Job says, now do I repent in sackcloth and ashes and put my hand over my mouth. Job's only sin in the book was going too far in his own defense. Oh, how I wish there was a trial between me and God and that I would be vindicated. Well, if Job is vindicated in a trial, who's convicted? God certainly isn't wrong. And that was Job's sin in the book. Two and a half chapters after God's answer to Job, where Job finally resigned himself and said, I will do whatever. God did give him a lot. Almost twice as much as he had before. And Job never got an explanation for what happened. Job didn't get the first two chapters where there was a discourse between Satan and God and Satan saying, to God, the only reason your people worship you is because you treat them well. And God said, have you considered Job? Satan didn't pick on Job. 
Satan didn't have an agenda and a vendetta against Job. God said, Job has enough faith. Job loves me and not the things that I give him. And I'll put my name on the line for it. This is the case of the psalmist. And verse 3, he pleads, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Your light and your truth. Does it sound familiar like Psalm 119? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Where was this word going to lead him? Where is this light and this truth going to lead the psalmist? And let them bring me to your holy hill. Let them bring me back to Jerusalem. Let them bring me back to the temple. Let these bring me back to the place of worship where I can together join with God's people and praise God. Then will I go to the altar, verse 4, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise You, O God, my God. The psalmist through two, two psalms has not decried God and said, God, how can You do this to me? I don't deserve this. I don't... I haven't earned any of this mistreatment. He said, God, let me praise You. Because, oh God, You are my joy. My exceeding joy. There is nothing else that matters in my life more than You. And upon the lyre I shall praise You. He desires to join the assembly in corporate worship. It's one of the things that I've witnessed even even again in, in teaching a number of the singles. Some of them haven't lived enough life to know how much life can hurt. They tell their parents, well, I don't want to go to church. I already know that stuff. I've already heard that sermon. I've already sung those songs. I already know those. But they haven't lived enough life to know better. To know how important it is to cling to God. To make God their exclusive joy in this life. Happiness is fine. Enjoyment is fine. Laughter is good. But if that's the things we live for, we have an empty life. And the psalmist concludes with his chorus. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Why is there reason to be upset when God is in control? Why is there reason to absolutely blow up and to lose our testimony when God knew everything that was going to happen? The end from the beginning. And my life, it's normally my car. I don't know what it is about me and traveling to New England where my wife is from, but in December we were about to go. My battery dies. My alternator dies. I mean, it is a succession of a couple of quick days, and I'm planning on doing a you know 2,500 mile trip, and all of a sudden all these parts start going wrong on my quote good vehicle. And I'm going. 
I don't know how I feel about taking my pregnant wife all the way up to New England. Just a couple of weeks ago, we came back from a second trip. And while on that trip, I blew the front strut in my car. And I'm pulling out of the driveway trying to, you know, go flag my father-in-law down and say, here's, here's where the house is because, the, you know, they didn't necessarily think about the roads that they planned out there. Um, most of them are just old horse trails and, you know, Indian paths that they decided to pave and call it a road. And so they just, it looks like a plate of spaghetti sometimes. They, the roads do not make sense. My wife laughs at me because I go up there and I'm completely lost. And I'm like, I grew up on the grid. Everything is square miles. And that's just the way things should be. But I pull out of the driveway to go flag him and I have a flat tire and I look at it and see my front fender sitting on top of my tire and I think to myself, this is a bad thing. And I jack it up and pull the tire off and, you know, the big steel spring that you've got that's, you know, half an inch, five-eighths diameter, just the steel just peeled right open. Nice, big, sharp point, you know, gouge the tire, rip open the sidewall. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm on vacation why is this happening? Why here? I have no tools. I, I mean, I, I always carry my little tool set in the back of my car, and I brought a couple extra just in case. But I don't have anything to take off bolts that big. I don't have anything to deal with this. My father-in-law found us. We went to the auto parts store and to watch how good God was. And somebody just happened to have two of those in stock for a car that's 12 years old. And everyone else could get you know, a couple of days, and I'm going, I, I don't have a couple of days. And call one place, yeah, we've got two of them in stock, and it's the lowest price I've found anywhere. I said, yeah, put those on hold. I'll be right there. Another play that my tire company, who, you know, they, they warranty the tires, well, there's none up there. Call them up and say, what am I supposed to do? They're like, oh, just buy one. We'll reimburse it. And I watch case after case after case after all of these things come perfectly together. And God say, why don't you just trust me? It sounds so simple. It sounds so easy when life is going well, when life is going good. But when we're flying out of the driveway and we're in a hurry and something dies, when the storm comes and blows our roof off, when all of everything closes in, then we can say what the psalmist as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. If you've ever broken a bone, you know the pain. My wife relates that pain to me frequently. She was in college when she broke her leg in a soccer game. Incidentally, it was my sister-in-law who broke her leg in that soccer game. And they put a rod in there, nice big titanium rod, and bolted it all together. A year later, it still hadn't healed. And they pull the rod back out and they do something else. I mean, how much pain she was in. You understand the case of the psalmist. If you have lived life for any length of time, you know this pain. And God will never give us more than we can handle. He will never give us a temptation that we have to succumb to. He will always provide a way of escape that we can bear with confidence whatever He throws our direction. And so I ask, where is your hope? Hope in God. 
because the Lord provides hope in the depths of despair. There is a song written by a friend of mine entitled, O God, My Joy. The second verse of that hymn, he captures this. He writes, Sustained by joy in trial and pain, I trust Your wisdom and mercy. Through suffering that Your love ordains, more like Your Son, You will make me. For Christ embraced the cross of shame, beholding glorious joys to come. Oh, give me faith like His to see that suffering lifts me to glory. Will you trust in God? Because it is only the Lord who provides hope in the depths of despair. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank You so much for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so thankful for how good You are to us, giving us far more than we deserve. Father, we're thankful for giving us everything necessary for life and for godliness. For not only saving us and calling us, but promising to perform that work until the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't always enjoy the trials that come. We don't always enjoy all of the difficulties that we might face. But Lord, we know that the suffering produces in us a far more eternal weight of glory. We pray that through the difficulties that we face, even this week, that we would hope and we would place our trust in You and in You alone. Lord, that we wouldn't be discouraged, that we wouldn't be depressed, that we wouldn't despair and we wouldn't doubt. Father, give us the faith to see that suffering lifts us to glory. We pray that You and to You alone would be our exceeding joy and that You would conform us more and more into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's for His name and His sake that we pray these things. Amen.